Well, tonight's a very special night, and it's a special night for a lot of reasons, not only because you are here and there are other temptations lurking out and about in our city tonight, but also because we're kicking off a study. Now, in order to kick off a study, I want to begin with a little bit of a different illustration. I'm usually not one for visual aids and props, but I have one. If I were to hand you this book that I'm holding, it would look old, used. You might even be tempted to throw it away. It's, a, it's an old book. In fact, it's, it's falling apart. It's very fragile. There are um, markings and different little tablatures in it. If, if you are really careful and you look at the inscription, it's obviously written in very old script in old English. It's lightweight. It's, it's almost crumbling in your hand. Now, it would be easy to walk by unless you knew what it was. This was given to me uh, after I passed my ordination by a dear brother who collected copies of Pilgrim's Progress. And this was one of his most prized possessions, not because it was the oldest, not because it's a first edition, but because of something that's very unique. And if you want to come up and look at it later, if you'll be very fragile with it, I'd be happy to let you hold it and look at it. It's an old copy of Pilgrim's Progress. It's falling apart, it's dilapidated. But what's, what's special about this book is the binding and the spine. I don't know if you can see that, but it came a point in some soul's life that this book meant so much to them that it actually began to fall apart. And when it did, they took needle and thread and intricately actually sewed the book back together. That's how special this book was. The more I describe that book, it's interesting to watch you get more interested in looking at it. In a sense, that's what you need to do when you begin a book. We need to stop and say, what is this about? We're going to do that tonight a little bit with the book of Ecclesiastes because I think if you look carefully and understand a little bit what's behind the book, it will be practical and even more special to you. By the way, this book, uh, this um, edition of Pilgrim's Progress is from 1794, 220 or so years old. And it just tells me every time I look at the fact that when it was falling apart, some poor soul sewed it back together. It just teaches me that truth is precious. Such is the case with the book of Ecclesiastes. Take your Bibles and turn there. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at one verse tonight and then jump into a lot of other verses. What I want to do is give you the background for this book. This, I trust, is going to be a life-changing study. And I don't mean that in a small, unexaggerated sense. I studied this book with a group of collegians about uh, 16 years ago. And when I did, I was shocked at what I found. And I remember finishing the last sermon and saying, Someday, when I'm older and wiser, I'm not sure if I've gained that yet, but I am older, I want to come back and study this book together. I think I'm going to look at it a little differently than even when I did at that point. If you want to break it down, this is Solomon looking for life 
everywhere but the right place. It's his chronicle, it's his narrative, it's his experiment of looking for life in all the wrong places. But before we do that, I want us to look at Solomon's life himself. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Koheleth, that's the Hebrew word for preacher. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is obviously ascribed to Solomon. In the coming weeks, I'm going to tell you more why I think that it's specifically uh, attributed to Solomon. There, is a lot, there are a lot of internal arguments and evidences that this was indeed Solomon who's the author. The reason I bring that up is a lot of people doubt Solomonic authorship. They think some, some think it was a, a pseudonymic uh, attribution. In other words, it was a man posing many centuries later as Solomon. But I see no other reason than to take it as this. Solomon was an interesting uh, man. And if you study biographies in the Bible, you'll find that Solomon is one of the most enigmatic studies to do. He, he starts so well. He has such interesting stories attributed to his wisdom and his wealth. And then he, he ends so poorly. You'll find his life chronicled in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11. What I want to do is back up. And I want to just give you some... Uh, some lessons, if I can, just from looking at the life of Solomon. We're going to bounce around a little bit. And these are lessons from a life of regret. Lessons from a life of regret. Solomon lived a life that was wonderful at points, but he also lived a life that he intimately regretted at some levels and at some depths. So let's just catalog some of these. The first is going to come not from Solomon himself, but from his dad. The first lesson when we look at Solomon's life is this. You are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. In order to understand this, you can turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is very familiar territory if you know your Bibles very well. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the fall of David. It's David's sin with Bathsheba. Chapter 12 is the culmination of that where he's confronted. Chapter 11 is a narrative, rather, of when he actually falls. And we don't have the time to go into all of what was said here about David, but here's what you need to notice. It's a Hebrew word, shalach. Shalach is a, is a very generic word interesting, uh, nondescript, non-interesting word, except when you see it repeated. When you see book, uh, words in the Bible, whether in English or especially in the Greek or Hebrew, repeated, you ought to stop and say, what's going on there? That is oh, the case with this word shalech. And shalech means to send. It's a simple verb that means send. Just look for a moment. Then it happened in the spring. This is 2 Samuel 11. At the time when kings go out to battle that David sent, there's our word. He sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. You know what happens, right? Now, when evening came, David rose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from there, the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Literally, it's very attractive in bodily form in appearance. And you would know why he would say this because he observed her bathing and you don't bathe with your clothes on. If you've been to Israel, you understand that the city of David is on the southern part of the Temple Mount. 
And the city of David, the city of Jebus, is actually like a terrace staircase that goes down the hill into the Kidron Valley. It just kept step, step, step down. David would have had occupied the top end of that palace. That's where his palace would have sat, the place of prominence. So it would have been easy from him, from his terrace, to look down onto rooftops. You say, why was Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof? Because the only place you could find privacy. Obviously, she didn't escape David's eye. So David, verse 3, here's our word again, sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, um, well... King David, actually, is this not? Notice how the, the, the messenger doesn't say this is. It just puts it in an interrogative. Um, is this not, just by chance, is this, is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam? <laughs> Very clear to say, this is, a, this is a father's little girl. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. We find our word again. And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. That would have been, by the way, seven days later under the Jewish custom in Leviticus. The woman conceived and she sent, here's our word again, and told David and said, I am pregnant. So David sent Joab saying, Joab sent then Uriah to David. There's lots of sending going on here. Uh, verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter by Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. You know how the story goes, right? Uriah is sent to the front of the, the field. He is killed by archers from the wall, the front of the battle, rather. And David then secures Bathsheba as his wife, trying to cover up the illegitimacy of that pregnancy. To finish the story out, if you look into chapter 12, by the way, there's, there's one more mention of Shalach, another mention rather. Then the Lord sent. God's in the business of sending too. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Here's what I want you to notice though, with all this sending. Lots of people knew what David was doing. Lots of people who knew David knew. Lots of people who knew Bathsheba knew. And yet, the closest we get to someone saying stop is the interrogative question. Is this not a daughter and a wife? You say, what's the point of that? You are your brother's keeper. Solomon's mom and dad came about out of David's sin. God works wondrously as a result of the sin of people. But it is interesting to see that even back in the beginning of Solomon's very uh, uh, beginnings, that it was the result of some people not looking out for each other. Well, you know what happens. The, uh, Nathan pronounces the consequences and the baby is born, the baby dies, and yet Bathsheba does have another son. And the son's named... Solomon, Jedediah. A little background. It's unique. It's interesting that Solomon was the 10th son of David, the second son of Bathsheba. By the way, each of his six half-brothers were all born in Hebron, each with a different mother. 
When we look at Solomon and say, how did he make the mistake of having all those women in his life? He didn't have to look very far for an example. Solomon grew up seeing the consequences of intrigue, the consequences of jealousy, murderous hate, and even in his own family. Before he grew to maturity, he had seen several of his half-brothers meet violent deaths and watched his half-sister get raped. Interestingly, Solomon was not the obvious heir to the throne. He wasn't the firstborn son. That was how the heir was chosen, right? The firstborn. He was the tenthborn male of David. So why did Solomon become king? Well, according to 1 Chronicles 22, the Lord revealed to David several years previously that Solomon would be the next to rule Israel. God specifically by name picked out Solomon or Jedidiah to be the king. According to 1 Kings 1.13 and 1 Kings 17, David had informed Bathsheba of this little fact. And let's just say she did a couple of end zone dances and spiked the ball on that fact. 1 Chronicles 28.5 and 29.1, he informed the public that Solomon was picked as the next king. That all sounds great, except there was an older brother named Adonijah. He actually attempted to take the throne by force, even though God had specifically said Solomon was going to be king. He was halted by God and killed by Solomon himself. Probably too hastily, but he was killed by Solomon. History would show that Solomon would not learn much from his dysfunctional family. He would have his own succession problems. Um, Rehoboam would have issues. Jeroboam would split the kingdom. It was going to be a disaster even underneath him. It's easy to say, though. It's easy to understand that you are your brother's keeper. When you look at how Solomon even came to have parents... It was actually the result of people not looking out for each other. Just a practical footnote. If you ever see, sense, know, have suspicion of any of your brothers or sisters moving towards sin, the, the demands of the narrative of, first Kings, uh, excuse me, of 2 Samuel chapter 11 tell us that we should say something. It's remarkable how many people knew about David and Bathsheba and no one said a thing. I love that story just looking at Uriah. I've, I know one friend of mine in California who's named Uriah. And every time I hear his name, I just think, what a man. He was one of the Hagiborim, the mighty men of David in the first place. Just a tragic story, but that's for another time. You are your brother's keeper. Number two, when we look at the life of Solomon. Now let's get into his life. Maturity happens on purpose. Maturity happens on purpose. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to find the transition here between David and Solomon. This is critical because this would be the foundation. This would be the the road on which Solomon was called to travel and would travel. 1 Kings chapter 2 verse 1. As David's time drew near, to die, drew near, he charged Solomon his son. Stop right there. David knew he was sick. They were actually uh, trying to warm him. They were doing everything they can to comfort him. He knew his time to die was, was momentary, not even a week or a day away. And so he brings Solomon, his son, the chosen king by God, close to his side. And he says, son, I am going the way of all the earth. This is a tender moment. David draws Solomon near and says, I'm... 
I'm about to die, son. Deathbed confessions are some of the most important words ever spoken. Deathbed charges are one of the most important charges to ever be uttered. And here we find David doing that with Solomon. Be strong. Therefore, be strong. And literally become a man. Show yourself a man. I think of that scene in 1553 when Ridley and Latimer were at the, at the stake in Oxford, have stood right at the place in the road where they were burnt. It was a ditch at that time. They tied them back to back on a stake and the older, he was in his 80s, 80s, Latimer turned to young Ridley in his 30s and said simply, play the man. And when he said play the man, that was the first Tyndale translation of this passage. Be a man. Become a man. Show yourself to be mature and a man. We would say that in our vernacular, man up. How do you do that? How do you grow into maturity? What does it mean, guys, men, young men? What does it mean for you to become a strong and a mature and a godly man? Luke, John, Mark, my sons, this is what I want for you more than anything. This is what I want for the men of our church to learn, understand, obey, apply, and have as their their goal and the trajectory of their life. How do you show yourself a man? Verse three, keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. We could expand that to the Bible since we have the whole completed canon. Why? So that you may succeed in all you do and wherever you turn. Here's the kingly succession part of that, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful, but can you stop right there? You see that conditional clause? If, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And it would only take one generation and he would lack a man on the throne of Israel. Why? Because this passage, this charge was not kept as it should have been. Should have been. Maturity happens on purpose. No one becomes spiritually mature by accident. No one becomes spiritually mature as a happenstance. It's not an inconsequential process. Spiritual maturity happens very clearly. Look at, again, look at what it says again in verse um, In verse four, be careful of your way. Understand your life. Walk before me in truth with all your heart, with all your soul. That's the essence of biblical spiritual maturity. Unless you get too gender specific, it's also a great pattern for women as well, right? Maturity happens on purpose. Well, how's Solomon gonna do with that? Let me give you a third lesson from a life of regret. God is in all the decisions, big and small. A third lesson is God is in all decisions, both big and small. Turn over to chapter three. 
Chapter two is the, the case of Solomon establishing himself and defeating Adonijah. We'll come back to this first part, but let me just read this for you. Chapter three, verse of First Kings. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. This was in between the tabernacle and the temple. Now Solomon loved the Lord. I love this. Verse three. He loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Sounds great, doesn't it? He was keeping the charge partly. Look what it says next. Except, now stop right there. Anytime you hear someone who says, he's walking with the Lord and the word except comes, you better stop. There should never be an except. Except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. These were places of idolatry and places of idol worship. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar in Gibeon. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night and God said. Now before we read this, I have... I have dreamed or at least meditated or at least kind of hoped or wondered what this would be like. Put yourself in his sandals, okay? God shows up to Solomon in a dream and says, Solomon, ask what you wish me to give to you. Wouldn't that be a great moment where God shows up and says, what do you want? I would have a list pretty quickly, I think. It's not the same list that Solomon has, though. Even though he had these, he, he, he was on both sides of the fence. He was walking with the Lord, except he was, he was offering uh, idols for, uh, sacrifices for idols. And we'll find out later, that's because of the women in his life. It says right there in the first verse that he had Pharaoh's daughter. How does Solomon respond? Whatever you want, you can have. He says, you've shown, verse 6, Great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. I love his assessment of his dad's spiritual strengths. And you have reserved for him this greatness, this great loving kindness, rather. And you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am immature. I am but a little child. I'm humble, in other words. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. I don't have a clue how to be king. I think he was right. And I think that was a failure on David's part. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So here's what Solomon asks for in response to God saying, I'll give you what you want. Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours, your people? What would you have asked for? 
Well, seriously, what would you ask for? Stuff? Fame? Watch what happens. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life or asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for life of the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, behold. When you see the word behold in the Old Testament, translate that, guess what? Guess what, Solomon? Because you haven't have asked for the right thing, I've done according to your words. You're going to have that wise heart. And guess what? I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been none like you before nor shall one be like you afterwards or rise after you. I have also, (laughs) verse 13, I have also given you what you've not asked for, riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. Conditional word. If, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Are you seeing a theme here? Solomon asked for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. Why did he want wisdom? For two reasons. To rule the people well and to discern justice, to know right from wrong, good from evil. That's going to be really important when we get into Solomon's great experiment in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. He had all this wisdom that he was supposed to apply to giving leadership to the people. We'll see how that works out. If you go on over to chapter 3 and verses 15 and following, then then you see the wisdom is uh, displayed. Uh, Let me just summarize the story. You know it well. There were two women who had... had, um, Babies, and they um, came to the king, and there was a problem. One of the women had rolled over and smothered her baby. And she woke up and saw the other lady who had the live baby and took that baby and said, this is mine. It was a problem, so they came to Solomon. Nobody could figure out whose baby was who. There was no, no DNA testing during that day. And they came to Solomon and said, how are we going to work this out? Remember what Solomon did? He says, tell you what. Bring me a sword, cut the baby in half, and give each half to, uh, to, to both of the women, and, and then we'll solve the problem. The woman who was not the mother said, that's fine, because she was embittered. The woman who was the mother said, oh no, let the baby live. He said, that's the mother. The story began to circulate. People began to see his wisdom unbelievable, unmatched wisdom to discern right from wrong, good from evil, to give leadership and provide that oversight. Solomon is used by God in chapters five through eight, by, by the way, to build the temple. Remember, David could not build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. He gave that to Solomon. Solomon built the temple. Remember, Solomon did not only have Wisdom, he also had riches and fame and honor. We'll come back to that over and over. Let me give you a fourth lesson from the life of regret. Students, junior hires, senior hires, collegians, and singles, take notes, okay? Lesson four, 
Romantic attraction affects spiritual direction. Romantic attraction affects or affects both spiritual direction. Who you marry will end up having immeasurable influence on who you are. Turn for a moment to the end of the story. Go over to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11. By the way, while you're there in 1 Kings 11, look back up the page at chapter 10, verse 24, on our previous point of of Solomon's wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Talk about fame. I mean, everybody wanted to be with him. Solomon had a weakness. He chose unwisely with regard to romance. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, you'll find out that the king was only to have one wife. Only one. Why did Solomon have all these wives? What, was he really uh, that much of a polygamist? No, we find out back in chapter 3 and moving through these chapters that he was, he was creating marriage alliances. These marriage alliances were strategic. It was a very common thing in the ancient Near East. It was a way to create peace between you and an enemy. How? Why? I give the Pharaoh uh, uh, one of the, the princesses, one of the most beautiful, attractive beauty queens of my culture. I give that Pharaoh. He gives me the same back. We then cohabitate with the, uh, these women, the kings do, and then they have babies, and now they're not going to fight each other because it's cousins. It was that simple. They were creating marriage alliances to create almost a proxy family across these enemy lines. Well, Solomon created all of these, and you say, well, how serious was this? Let's read how serious it was. Now, King Solomon, here's the problem. Creating those marriage alliances would be bad enough. He didn't just have the marriage alliance. Something happened in his heart. It says so in verse 1. He loved, he loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, which we already found out in chapter 3 verse 1. The Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite. Sidonian and Hittite women. If you're a reader of the Old Testament, those names should dance and jump off the page as the perennial enemies of Israel. It gets worse in verse 2. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. Literally means be among them. Don't even fraternize with them. Why? Why? For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And yet, Solomon held fast to these in love. God had not just said the king should have one wife. 
God had told the entire nation, do not even associate with these people. Not only had Solomon created marriage alliances for strategic defense benefits, he had created these marriage alliances in which he fell in love with these girls. And because he fell in love with them, exactly the warning happened. What was the problem? They will bring their gods into your home, their idols into your home, and will dull your heart toward the Lord. Verse Three, how bad did it get? He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. A concubine was, uh, in this kingly sense, was given not just as a wife, but just as someone to procreate with, to create strategic cousin alliances with. What did God warn What had God warned? If you do this, if you don't pursue romantically someone who has the same passions for for me, God says, that I do, you're going to have trouble because you're going to end up choosing your romantic affections over your love for me. Look at verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. Is that not amazing? I, I can't even process that. And his heart was not complete, wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father had been. You can accuse David of of a lot of things, but idolatry was not his besetting sin. It was Solomon's. Why? Because the women he fell in love with were so important to him, meant so much to them that their interest and their worship became his how bad did it get? I wish we had the time to look at these, these rabbit trails that Solomon took. For he went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, for whom the Ammonites would offer living babies and crucify them. Tacked them up on, on wood to kill them as a sacrifice to their idols. What's the assessment? Verse 6. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not follow the Lord fully as his father had done. Footnote. Aside. Practical application. The person that you choose to marry will have the greatest spiritual influence on your life. The question is, what kind of influence will that be? I just want to, we'll, we'll get into this in Ecclesiastes too, but I just want to talk just for a moment to you singles. You see what happened here? You see what happened here? He got involved with, with someone romantically who didn't have the same affections for the Lord that he had. And instead of Saul, this is the king. This is Solomon. This is David's son who knew better. Instead of Solomon influencing them, what do you find? They pulled him down. They held him back. I don't remember in the hundreds, the thousands of couples that Kim and I have had the opportunity to be around for decades of student ministries, I don't remember a case 
where a strong spiritual leader got involved with, or a strong spiritual man or woman got involved with someone who wasn't pursuing the Lord, and that went well. Almost universally, the lower level of maturity holds back and pulls back the upper. Not only that, <laughs> godly mature singles don't pursue ungodly immature singles unless their emotions are engaged, unless their affections are involved, unless they're operating on principles of lust. Please take note of Solomon. Who you choose to be romantically involved with will have the greatest spiritual influence on your life. Choose wisely. Solomon didn't, and it was evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 6 says. Evil in the sight of the Lord. Now let's get closer to the book of Ecclesiastes. Number five. Experience is the best teacher. Experience is the best teacher, especially if it's someone else's experience. Experience is the best teacher, especially if it's someone else's experience. We're called to listen to the book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon, who's looking at his life, we'll look at this next, next week, so much so as these are my experiences. Learn from them or you can crash and burn and, and learn from your own. Solomon tried to make it across the thin ice of worldliness. And he didn't make it. The book of Ecclesiastes is, we'll get to this in our next study, is really Solomon at the end of his life looking back at his tragic decline from his greatness and chronicling what happened and the lessons that he learned along the way. It's like he's standing on the other side of a pond that he's tried to walk across on the ice and it's too thin. He's fallen in. He's freezing. It's awful. He's on the other side shivering, yelling back at us, don't do what I did. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. You can learn from Solomon's experience or you can learn from your own Let me give you a final lesson here. Would you turn back to Ecclesiastes for a moment? We're gonna go all the way to the end for a second. All the way to the end. A couple of things I wanna say to you about this book at the beginning. It's, here's what makes teach, uh, preaching Ecclesiastes really hard is it's a sermon, it's one sermon. And we're going to break it down into a lot of sermons. But what's good about Ecclesiastes in one sitting, I would encourage you, if you have an opportunity this week, sit down and read the whole book in one sitting. It won't take you that long. But it was intended to be done in one sitting. It was one sermon with a beginning, an introduction, a conclusion, uh, all the parts, the constituent elements of his outline are in there. It's all there. As he moves toward the conclusion, though, look at chapter 12. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now, let's go back to English class. What person is your? Remember your creator. First, second, or third? 
You can look. It's second. Good, class. It's directed trust. It's imperative. It's second person. Now, in the Hebrew, I can tell you, it's plural. Remember y'all's. He was a good southerner. Remember your creator. When? In the days of your youth. Are you ready for this? Ecclesiastes, which is often said to be the highest level of philosophical theology in the Bible, which is the most difficult to understand, this was written to young people. Remember your creator in the days of your youth when you're young. In other words, listen to my experience now at the end of my life so you don't have to experience what I have in the prime of your life. So can I give you a sixth lesson from life of regret? It's never too late to run to God. It's never too late to run to God. Solomon regained his senses Got his life back under the direction of God. He, he pins this book. He tells us of his experience. He instructs us on how not to go the way that he went, and it didn't go so well. He is brutally honest. I want to tell you, we're going to hit some things in Ecclesiastes which you are going to swallow hard and say, I can't believe he said that. We're going to find out that we're exposed by the pleasures we sample and seek. But no matter what we do, it's never too late too late to run to God. And you better remember this. Let me give you the conclusion of the whole book before we start. Ready? Look at verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. How important is it, Solomon? For God will bring Every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Solomon is overwhelmingly qualified to look at his life and instruct ours. He's qualified in terms of wealth management. No one was was wealthier than he was. He's qualified in terms of relational mistakes. We'll, we'll come back to this in chapter two, but isn't it interesting that when he's talking to Rehoboam in chapter five of Proverbs, with a thousand women in his life, he says, drink water from your own cistern, your own wife, and that's singular and not plural. You think there's a message in there? Solomon is one of my enigmas and heroes. And the reason that he's a hero of mine is I see the grace of God in his life working all the way through and especially at the end. And I see him respond rightly to his failures eventually. But Solomon's lesson is you're better off if you respond sooner than later. Repentance sooner is much better than repentance later. You won't have to learn life lessons. You won't have to suffer consequences. So here it is. This is a book that Solomon's going to teach us that's primarily written to junior high, senior high, collegiate, and single people that the rest of us get to learn from as well. And there are some deep and heavy lessons in here. We're going to learn about money. We're going to learn about death. We're going to learn about loaning. We're going to learn about priorities. We're going to learn about 
sin. We're going to learn about wealth management from the standpoint of abuse. We're going to learn about sex and the proper use of, of God's gift of sex. Learn about pride. We're going to learn about church. You want to get a head start? You want to be ready for, for worship next Sunday? Read chapter 5. It's incredible. So all that is to say, let me go back to this at the beginning. This is interesting to me because I know what's behind it. I know John Bunyan. I, don't, I didn't personally know John Bunyan. <laughs> I know who John Bunyan is. I, I, this is This means so much to me because I know a lot about it. Ecclesiastes and Solomon's life will mean much more to you if you know much about it. Solomon's conclusion is very, very clear. It's about the revelation, the great revelation of God. And that's nowhere better than the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to find Jesus in Ecclesiastes but we're going to get to Jesus from Ecclesiastes very often. Father, now dismiss us with thoughts of how we can learn, that we need to learn from your servant Solomon. Help us not even to be judgmental of him, but in fear for our own decisions. As we begin this study, help us who are a little older to look at our lives and make adjustments that, are, that defy the adage that an old dog can't learn new things. I pray for the younger students as they sit under Solomon's pen that they will definitely and certainly learn from his experience and his mistakes so they don't have to make the same ones themselves. And in all of this, that we look at life and looking for it in the right places and not the wrong places. Lead us to Calvary. Show us Christ and our need for him because of Solomon's honest description and assessment of his own failures. Teach us, Lord, from this wisdom section of your word to be wise. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen.